music. Out of the box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI Radio listener Joey Watson here. Welcome to Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one guest and run through stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, drag artiste Le Gâteau Chocolat Gâteau was raised in the bustling seaside Nigerian city of Lagos in a conservative Pentecostal family. He grew up suppressing his identity in an environment where being gay was forbidden. At 16, he moved to the UK to attend boarding school, which became a law degree. But soon, he shook off the traditional route, and almost by accident, he became a drag-inflected diva, with the soaring operatic baritone that he lends to the compositions of everyone from Whitney to Giuseppe Verdi. Currently, he is in Sydney touring his drag show Icons, which explores the people, the moments, the books and the relationships that have come to shape us and the ideals we aspire to. Ghetto, a warm welcome to Out Thank of the Box. Thank you very much. It's so great to be here. It's oh. great to be back in Australia. Back in Australia. Yeah. Ghetto, I want to uh, start by asking you, you, you asked not to be referred to as a drag queen, but a drag artiste. Why is that an important distinction to make? Um, for me, I think drag queen comes with um, some expectations, some stereotypes, some connotations, and part of my job actually would be to really luxuriate in subverting what you expect. Right. Um, I think a lot of people's experience of drag is a certain thing, a particular thing. People go to one source for what they think drag should be delivering. Um, and I would like to think that I hopefully deliver that and go beyond. So I'm, I'm interested in that. I mean, this idea that you want to challenge people through your art on stage. Yes. How, how does that actually play out? Well, um, I think... Um, I think to look at the picture that is in um, Sydney Festival's program, mm. um, to be reductive is to see um, a black man in drag, a bearded black man in drag. And I don't know what you would take away from that image. Um, but the show hopes to subvert whatever your expectation of what that image is, of what you think that that should be. I suppose some of the things that you might see or you might um, imagine is he's gay, um, it'd be camp, or, you know, those are, those are, that's, that's the, your line of thinking. Um, but I, my, especially in the times that we live in now, I think my show tries to underline and remind us of our commonalities and our shared humanity. And that's what this show is about. Sure. It's about performing for Sydney ciders and Australians or people in Edinburgh or in London and having people after show going, that was my bedroom, that was my playlist, <laughs> that was, and that's, I think that's the important um, thrust of the show. I wonder, you're one, I mean, you just touched on it then, you're, you're one of maybe the, f the few drag artists in the world that get the opportunity to tour internationally. Yeah. Do, do you notice differences in the way that audiences in different parts of the world respond to your act? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I think, it, because I think there's a certain expectation of what they think they're going to get in the show. You don't, like, um, the show that I'm performing here is Icons, but another of my shows is called Black, and Black is a meditation on depression. And even though all the material 
says what it is before you come into the room, um, the way, you know, the short blurb about the show, people still come in expecting some kind of raucous party or for me to be um, for coarse humour. And I open with Wagner and then I go into Strange Fruit and we go to really dark places. And I think people are sat there waiting to like, yeah. <laughs> and, and I can deliver that. I think part of my job is to deliver that. I'm uh, part of my remit and part of who I am is to be a clown. But um, I think the fullness of what I do is also to embrace my humanity and to showcase that on stage. Mm -hmm. In the show, I talk about the art of drag being, uh, and the person who taught me this, the art of drag being putting a mask on only to reveal the person behind it, is to kind of share this idea that people think drag is just men or men in women's clothes or drag kings women in men's clothes where and but i think drag is simply projecting the side of yourself that you want to showcase at that very given moment and so in people don't appreciate that at every point in your life you are in drag. If you're going to go to theater, you go to you be in your theater drag. If you're going to go, if you're being introduced by your partner to their parents for the first time, you'd be on your best behavior. On your first date with your partner, you'd be in that sort of drag. And then when your relationship progresses into the second and third year, you'd be in a different kind of drag. Drag evolves. So I think it's it's who we become, it's who we are, it's the many facets of our personalities. Well, uh, as you know, this is a a music show. Yes. How did you go choosing your five records? Today? Well, I oh my god, you asking me today it was a bit. It was really, really. I didn't know. I didn't know where to begin. I didn't know where to start from. So I thought I would limit it. I would kind of hone in on the songs in the show. I, sure. That was what made it easy because otherwise, I mean, I could have stayed in opera. I could have stayed in classical. I could have stayed in just instrumental. I could have stayed in rock, 80s. I didn't know where to go. Um, so I just thought, let's do music that's in the show in Icons. Sure. Uh, do, you, do you have time to listen to music oh, in absolutely. your busy life? How um, do you? Oh, um, I music is what solves my soul. I think um, music is uh, an important part of who I am. Um, uh, so... I've always got music on the go. It's almost always classical or opera. Um, mm. uh, I, it's almost always that sort of music, but um, it's very, very, very important to me. I'm an insomniac as well, so through the night I have music playing. Um, yeah, music yeah. is so is so is such an integral part of who I am. Well, I'm, I mean, moving quite f- far away from uh, classical and opera, perhaps yes. the first song that you've elected to play oh. is "Running Up That Hill." Is yes. Kate Bush? Can you tell me a little bit about this track? Oh, okay. Kate Bush. Kate Bush is um, an artist that kind of encapsulates an ethereal witchy magic quality and this album hounds of love is pretty spectacular it's a bit of an experience um listening to the entire thing as it because i think i think it's um i think you can pick one song but i think you can listen to the entire album and have a sort of religious experience because of what she does and i think there's a lot of it captured on this track she's doing the backing vocals, there's a kind of yearning there, then there's the war cry. Do you wanna feel 
Bush there with her 1985 track, Running Up That Hill. Oh my god, 1985. I was, Nin- I was three. Three, I was years, three. three years old. I was three. Do you think you'd already, uh, you'd, you'd already uh, cognizant of who Kate Bush was when you were oh, three? No, God, old. no. <laughs> but I mean, that's when that was. That's so magnificent that, you know, I, I still came came back to find that. So it's, I mean, it's a glorious track. It's a good track. <laughs> it, it is. And, and it was, uh, for the listener, the first song selected by my guest on Out of the Box today, drag artist, opera singer, cabaret star, Le Gâteau Chocolat. Gâteau... You were first raised in in Nigeria's seaside metropolis, Lagos. Correct. The son of heavily Pentecostal parents. Yes. Can you tell me about your mum and dad? My mum. My mum is. Uh, my mum is. Well, she's a matriarch. She's a she's a formidable woman. She's. Um, she kind of raised. She raised my sister and myself. My parents were separated, so my mum kind of raised us on her own, and it's. Um, she was a bit of a wonder woman in terms of having her finger in so many pies and juggling so many things to make it all work. What what pies were they? Oh, I mean, just kind of like she was. Um, she studied accounting, and so she was climbing um, the uh, the corporate ladder, um, as she had. Uh, but in and then she also ran business on the side. My mom um, is a cook she's an incredible cook so she tries to keep that afloat as well and then um at one point she was a trader so she used to get um uh, jewelry and fabrics from dubai and london and sell them so she was always like in the office or in getting on a plane or catering for a party and also make uh make a really kind of comfortable Mm. Uh, incredible life for my can, sister and myself. Can, can you paint uh, a picture of your childhood in Lagos? What sort of childhood did you have? I, uh, it was me and my sister, and my sister and I remain very, very close. Um, if you think of the Sydney weather, you are about 38 degrees now. 38 degrees, between 33 and 38 is kind of the temperature in Lagos because it's right on the equator so it's always hot um it was a a a happy childhood um a lot of what i've come to find now um i realized that i was suppressing a lot of um my i realized that i was playing a childhood drag there to protect myself Mm. because being raised in a very um, Christian um, family my dad was Catholic my mum was Pentecostal so with my dad we had um, Catholicism every Saturday and then um, we had to do a little test before we had our first Holy Communion Um, and this was so it's very very religious Mm. and so from early on I don't know that I thought I, I was gay i didn't know what it was but i knew that it was wrong um so and all of this is woven into trying to be a kid you know sure i mean beyond beyond that 
conservative family environment yeah. that you were growing up in. Yeah. Is there a gay community in Lagos? Are there, are there not that I know of. God, not even today. I, d- I no, right. no, no. It's not. It's not. No. So was it even on your horizon? I mean, no. was it even a, an idea that you, you that's something that you could be? No. Oh, and it still isn't. It's because I think um, Nigeria has one of the harshest. Um, in terms of the criminalization of homosexuality, I think Nigeria is still very um, on the harsher side of the scale. So whatever it was, I didn't know what it was, but I knew that I was aberrant. I knew that I wasn't like everyone else. I knew that I knew that um, it was boys and girls. And for some reason, I just it, I knew that I I wasn't that wasn't me. So and I knew that it was against the Christian teaching um, so, and very early on I just knew that it was something that I had to hide I think when you are in the minority when you're marginalized you very quickly clue in to your place in the strata and how you have to maneuver and navigate all of that what was school like primary school was a lot of fun primary school was a lot of fun yeah um, uh, I just, I just remember it being fun. It was good. I was really good at my studies. I was really good at, um, uh, I was in the Red Cross. There was Red Cross or Boy Scouts. I was in the Red Cross. Um, secondary school was really difficult. Secondary school was where I, where kids kind of come into their own, hormones start to take over. And unlike primary school, where there was a lot of joy, I, I remember secondary school being people recognizing starting to embrace the boxes that they were in and telling you what box that you were in and I was severely severely bullied in secondary school for the first four years four or five years really really badly can I ask what sort of bullying it was oh physical physical I was beaten up I was beaten up several times several times um uh I, I suppose I, is the whole kind of um, I was just singled out. I was always singled out. Um, and you become adept at turning your personality, your person, if you think about it as a volume dial, you become adept of um, turning your dial down to zero so that you become invisible. You try to be invisible. Um, and in a way, that attempt to hide makes you stick out even more um, because I was never successful at it. Mm. Um, Yeah, it was like, it was physical, physical abuse, it was really bad. And were you exposed to the arts at all at this stage? Oh yes, I was. Did you start to discover music? How did that happen? Was that through church? That was um, choirs. Um, My dad used to listen to um, uh, Blacksmith and Bazo and, and I remember falling in love with those harmonies um and but also my mum had a record player and a few records um and i remember tina turner and dolly parton and luther vandross and so very early on there was always music in the house always music in the house i suppose my exposure to music was from home really um but exposure to the art in terms of when i started doing stuff would have been in school and you're right it was church because i used to sing in primary school i used to kind of be in the choir um 
And then in secondary school, um, very, very Christian, kind of Pentecostal, there was a church choir of about 12 of us. And um, we got into doing a lot of a cappella and close harmony singing. Um, and that used to that used to bring me a lot of joy, and that was a, that was a haven. That was um, something I could escape into. That was something that was a, a wonderful distraction. So, yeah. In tribute to this uh, time in your life, what can we play now? Um, so this next song, um, Lord, how come we here? Is uh, spiritual, an American spiritual, and the reason I've chosen this is because it's not something I've excavated a lot but it's something that I will do my mother's maiden name is Johnson which is not a Nigerian name which infers um, a link to having slave masters or and I don't know how many um, uh, generations that separates us and I thought that it would be appropriate coming from Lagos which was had a slave port and this song appears in icons to choose this song by Kathleen Battle Thank you. 
That spiritual was Lord, How Come Me Here, sung by Kathleen Battle and brought into FBI by Legato Chocolat. You are listening to Out of the Box. Gato, when you were 16, yes. you moved from the bustle of Lagos to the UK. Where Indeed. Your, where your, your parents had decided um, to enroll you in boarding school. Yeah. Why did they think that that was the best course of action for you at that age? I think it was always that's kind of part of the plan. Part of the master plan is to further education because um, I was born in London. Um, the part of the plan was for me to always end up back in the UK anyway so I'd finished secondary school I got good grades I got great grades and then um, moved back to the UK it was always part of the plan and then um, from there go from boarding school straight to university and study which I did can, can you paint a picture of boarding school for me what was that like um, I remember very clearly my mum dropping me off because um, I was also in boarding school in Nigeria from 10 to 16 I was in boarding school but I remember my mum dropping me off but, but, but this was different because this was boarding school in a completely different country yeah. you know where in the UK are we? we are in the south in a place called Stenning I went to Stenning Grammar School and I remember getting there and my mum had been quiet and both of us had been quiet on the journey up there. And then I remember, you know, just kind of laying all the stuff into help her, um, her helping me to unpack all the stuff. And then it came time to go and both of us were inconsolable. So much so that the my housemaster had to, he took, he, instead of saying goodbye at the boarding school, he drove us to the station so that I could have a little bit more time with her. But I was inconsolable for days, for days i mean for months actually because it was just it was just a, a real wrench a real rip from everything that i knew and thankfully um being that emotional i had uh, in my room my dorm there were only three beds but the second bed was empty so it was only two of us and there was a welsh guy who i sh shared with michael michael was thankfully not um toxically masculine um, because that could have gone horribly that could have been you know uh, I could have been bullied for it I could have been Michael was instead very um, very compassionate and very kind of he took me under his wing and really consoled me so much was this a uh, period in your life where you began to identify as gay yes indeed um i'd traveled a lot i'd you know been i'd been coming to england all the time i was in nigeria and my i also have half brothers and sisters in america so i'd been exposed to what homosexuality was so then i knew i knew it had a label but um moving to the uk was definitely um, an evolution in the step in terms of being able to embrace it because I wasn't living in the uh, criminalized culture anymore where it was, you know, in Nigeria. Sure, but the um, I'm interested in the, the, the UK gay community that you eventually discovered. Yeah, uh, it's that, that didn't come for many years because right. it didn't happen in boarding school. It happened um, when I got to uni, which was in 2000. It happened two years after yeah, because sure. in 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 boarding school, it wasn't there was no community. It was still very kind of isolating and isolated. Mm. But when I got to university again in the South Sussex University, there I discovered um, many more queer people. 
No. So you I were w- completely immersed in a yes. different space. S- yes. So um, I would go and see family in America. Um, my mum would come over. Um, yeah, so it was a completely, a completely new life. Right. Yeah. Right. And did you, I mean, did you feel Nigerian? I mean, you'd been born in the UK. Yeah. You came into oh, this. I, I mean, it, it's kind of like the, the, the height of boarding schools. Yeah. It evokes this image of this very high imperial British culture almost. Yeah. Did you feel, I mean, how did you go navigating that space? Um, you, I think it's really, is a very interesting thing. And I think it's one that I tried to kind of underline in my show because whether or not people want to, if I didn't feel Nigerian, people definitely made me feel other um, because I didn't look and sound like everyone else. Um, so, but then I was I was very hyper aware of myself and my difference. Um, how did I navigate that? I, well, in my, thankfully in Stenning, I was, not bullied for it. I was kind of weirdly celebrated for it or exoticized for it, so much so that within a year I was made head boy, which was really weird because it was one that you had to be voted, you had to be voted to be head boy. And I was like, oh, okay. And these people had been together since they were kids. Wow. Um, yeah. What was that like going from being bullied in middle middle school in Nigeria to being head boy at a boarding school in it was, I suppose, um, in the words of Diana Ross, it was like, I'm coming out. It was, um, it was, um, <laughs> I, it was, um, it was, a, it was an eye opening thing in that it was, I suppose, I suppose it was one of the first acceptances for being myself. You know, it was the first time a community has said, oh, not only is it all right for you to be yourself, we're actually going to celebrate that. Mm. It was the first time that that was the case, um, you know, so much so that they made me head boy, you know, that's it was an extraordinary thing. So it was the first time where my sort of thinking, which had been skewered into thinking that everything that I was was wrong, was kind of slightly realigned like, oh, you're, it's not a bad thing. What you are isn't a bad thing. What should we play off the back of that guitar? Oh, uh, we should play some meatloaf. Yes, and I'll tell you why. Because meat. Look, listen, listen. You need to embrace the dry ice, the massive falcons, the big hair, the smoke machines, wind machines, and just go with it. Go with the rock ridiculousness of I would do anything for love. Some days it don't come 
And some days it don't come hard Some days it don't come at all And these are the days that never end And some nights you're breathing fire And some nights you're caught in ice Some nights you're like nothing I've ever seen before will again And maybe I'm crazy Oh, it's crazy and it's true I know you can save me No one else can save me now but you As long as the planets are turning As long as the stars are burning As long as your dreams are coming true You better believe it That I would do anything for love Oh, I would do anything for love Oh, I would do anything for love But I won't do that No, I won't Some days I pray for soul Some days I just pray to the God of sex and drums and rock and roll And maybe I'm lonely, it's all qualified to be There's just one and only, one and only promise I can keep As long as the wheels are turning That was 
meatloaf on your radio. <laughs> yes, handsome. it was. Go with it, guys. Listen, go with Just it. Just go do some head it. banging and do some air guitar. <laughs> That's right, you need to. The anthem, I Would Do Anything for Love, was selected by Drag Artist Ghetto Chocolat, my guest on Out of the Box today. Ghetto, from boarding school, yeah. you were offered a spot at the Guide Hall School of Music and Drama, but yes. you decided that you had to turn it down. Why was that? Well, I didn't. My, my dad wouldn't pay for that. My dad wouldn't pay for me to go to music college because um, the preferred route was my law degree. Mm. Um, so I had Tell to audition. Tell me about that. What, what was it like bringing it to him? And Well, I had finished my law degree and the next thing was to kind of go and do a master's or to do articles or to be pupillage and all of that. Because by that point, I had discovered um, some um, amateur performance, some non-professional gigs and, you know, singing. I was singing a lot at uni. And I thought, oh, well, maybe there is the possibility of me doing this professionally um and so i had engineered i paid for and engineered an audition for the Guildhall school of music and drama um which is very respected in the uk and i auditioned and i got a place and i was like yes at least that says to him that uh, this is not some kind of flight of fancy this i'm i'm actually all right at doing this i'm i could there's the possible route here right and he was like uh no nah. No. But, um, but before that, it was the Brighton club scene and specifically a club night called Dynamite Boogaloo. You've, you've done a lot We've of... We've got to pull the right things I out here. Mean, the, I mean, I mean, this, this club night, I mean, take me there. This became your initiation yes, into the world did. of vocal entertainment. What what happened at, okay. at a, a, dyna, Dynamite, a Dynamite Boogaloo? Dynamite Boogaloo yeah. had two extraordinary performers, Dolly Rocket and Boogaloo Stew, and on the decks was dynamite sal and so the music was kind of indie to rock to r&b to chart stuff um but at every it was on every thursday at a club called the joint which is seedy wonderfully brilliant dark you know like you'd have your joint shoes because anything that you wore there would get wrecked um and um at 12 30 every thursday they had a cabaret show and dolly rocket she had and has massive knockers. She's huge. <laughs> and she's about six foot tall. She's in, oh my God, she's such an incredible woman. And um, uh, Boogaloo Stew would put on the show. They'd both they'd do a song each or a song together. And then there'd be a game show. And I was like, what in the world is this? I need to be part of this. <laughs> um, and so for my years at uni, I just went, I went there every Thursday, every Thursday. And they heard me singing on the dance floor one day. And that's how they pulled me into this world of cabaret. That's how I was exposed to it. And Dolly Rocket gave me a tube of lipstick. No, no, no. Princess Snickers, who was also a guest star, she's a stripper. Princess Snickers gave me a tube of lipstick. I'll never forget it. It was kind of this greasy pink thing. And Dolly Rocket <laughs> gave me a, a, a muumu she wasn't wearing anymore and an afro. And that's how I started. That was Baby Gatto. <laughs> They just pulled me on stage and I was like, yeah, let's do some songs. And my first song, I think, was like Shreddy Bassey's um, Diamonds Are Forever. That's the first song I did in front of everybody. How did the evolution from the CD clubs of Brighton into yeah. the kind of world of musical theatre and camera And opera and all of that. Yeah, how did that happen? By mistake, I think. I don't know. I think you know, my, my musical taste um, and my voice were leaning towards the operatic and classical scene. So I suppose 
I started looking for, from doing that in Dynamite Bookalow, I started looking for a way to showcase my USP, which was my love for opera. And so I started looking for different platforms, you know. I'd, it was mostly the London club scene, you know, traveling, traveling up on trains and performing um, at, in clubs at 1 a.m. And weirdly, it was a kind of weird juxtaposition because sometimes it worked sometimes sometimes it didn't but then i started learning a lot of contemporary stuff so i would do some adele i would do high of the tiger <laughs> i would do but then i would inject some um les mis as well i was kind of a mixed thing um and then slowly over the years i kept seeing other artists um who were able to make a go of it um, there's another performer called Johnny Wu, um, an, an artist I remember actually in university. I went and saw a dra- oh, I wouldn't say I did again. I don't know if Taylor Mac is is not, uh, Taylor Mac isn't drag. Taylor Mac is I don't know is a creature of um, curio- curiosity, one that really intrigued me. And I just saw I saw the poster, and it looked like a man in drag. It was makeup and some really extraordinary makeup and I went and saw this show in, in Brighton and I was like oh my god this is a thing this is this is a thing this is a man from New York telling these stories and telling me that it's okay and telling me that he is me and and how is that how is that a thing how is that how is he able to connect with me and my Nigerian and my so or how am I able to and it was just a wonderful experience. It sure. was a very kind of enlightening, eye-opening thing. And I, I'm interested in the role that race played in informing that move from um, musical theatre into the world of cabaret. Yeah. What? What? How, how did race come into it in the terms of the sort of characters that you were being offered in in the first part of your your um, performance career? That's a really good question. Because um, the very first part of my career, when I got an agent, I was only, my first job was playing like the genie in Aladdin. And then everything else was always for, my auditions were always for like black musicals or black roles. So it was like Papa in Starlight Express or when the the, um, the Lion King or Thrill Alive. Thriller Live, which has been running in London for such a long time, it might be a great musical showcasing Michael Jackson's music, but I'm not a Thriller Live singer. My voice isn't pop, but because it was because of my color and because I sang, it's just like, yeah, we'll just send you in for that. So I think very quickly I had to find a way to make this work for me. Um, and, and the answer to that was cabaret. The answer to that was kind of cabaret, really. Um, because the theater world wasn't kind of embracing everything that I could offer beyond my color, which was rather frustrating. Next, uh, you're going to thrust some opera I am into indeed. the ears of FBI Radio listeners. Tell I am me indeed. about uh, this piece. Okay, so um, Celine Dion sang a song with a guy called Andrea Bocelli. Andrea Bocelli was my first link into kind of operatic music, and but he was a gateway, he's a kind of gateway into this, then, you know, I was exposed to Pavarotti and Placido Domingo, Leontine Price, Jesse Norman. Um, and then one of the superstars in that kind of the early 2000s was um, a performer called Angela Giogu, who subverted the 
idea of it's not over till the fat lady sings. I think again, there's a, a connotation that opera singers are fat, um, and that's how they're able to make this big sound. Um, and there was a time where they did look like that, and all the caricatures and the cartoons are like that, and the Wagnerian things, you know, with the with the horns and whatever. However, she came on the scene, and she's like strikingly beautiful, and. Um, she came on the scene with this opera, which was one of my first um, uh, full operas that I saw, Verdi, um, La Traviata. And this is her singing the extraordinary coloratura aria at the end of Act One. Romanian soprano Angela Yorgu there singing Folly Folly, no doubt. The FBI radio listener can already pin it as being from Giuseppe Verdi's 1853 opera La Traviata. Yes. Uh, You're welcome, guys. You're welcome. It's a right bloody banger. It is. Provided to me by a drag artist and Sydney Festival headliner Legato Chocolat. He is my guest on Out of the Box today. Uh, Ghetto, I want to move as far away from high opera as we can. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, a variety act you were doing almost accidentally became a show for children. You know the history of this? Wow. Tell me. Take me through it. I mean, wow. Wow. (laughs) No. Okay. So I've got a family show, a kid show called Ducky, which is based on the ugly duckling fairy tale. It It became a show for children. But how? How? How did it happen? Oh, that's what I'm, I'm yearning for you to tell me. So I'm the listener. The, 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 um, he knows because he's, I, he put it in the question. Um, where I went to perform at a gig and I was closing the gig, um, but I was backstage, so I didn't know who the audience were. And I normally travel with all my music. It was like on, a, on an iPod or an iPhone or whatever. Um, and I came out. And so coming out was my first visual 
of who the audience were. And I came out and I think I was doing I Dreamed a Dream or something. Um, and in the front, so bef between me and the first seat, in that gap that normally separates performance stage and audience were about 30 kids and i was like what <laughs> is going on here um so i finished i dreamed a dream and it's not that they weren't into it but i was all of a sudden i was really taken by the kids so i took my heels off and i came off stage and i was like hey so hi who are you what's going on <laughs> and we just had a little chat and then i changed my um the song i was going to sing i sang um I think I did Hopelessly Devoted. No, I did um, 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 Beauty and the Beast from uh, from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I did uh, Hopelessly Devoted to You, I think. Or no, and then I finished with Nothing Compares to You. But the kids were like dancing and doing like ballet moves and everyone was like hugging each other. And I was like, what is happening? Um, and it was a really rather joyous experience and so completely unplanned, you right, know, like. Right. And then the next day, the artistic director who had program the night um, in Colchester Art Centre called me and said um, hi so you need to make a kid show um, and here's some money here's some money go make a kid show and this is what became Ducky which was Indeed. In, in part uh, for your niece yes uh, who had moved from Nigeria to Sussex and found it very hard to settle into school how, how did it respond to the problems that she was facing um, you see I think the seemingly innocuous phrase um human being isn't innocuous if you are perpetually othered um, and what I mean by that is you are allowed to be if you're in the majority if you're not you're always reminded of all the things that you are so my niece in Nigeria was a human being my niece in England was a black girl and kids didn't mean to they were just curious going your nose looks different your skin color is different to ours your hair texture is different and so them it wasn't that she was being bullied it was that she was told that she wasn't just a kid and it's the first time that she because in nigeria she was just a kid going to school whereas here she was a black kid going to school because there was no one else like her in her class and so Ducky was in response to that um, because I found, and in response to my bullying in, um, in secondary school, I found that um, the Ducky fairy tale that um, of mistaken identity and then you become a swan, I found it hopeful, but also very difficult and unrealistic um, and dangerous because not everyone gets to become a swan um, and embracing your swan has got to be a metaphorical change so ducky was made to teach my niece and myself still that i am enough i don't have to become something else so in the story how i've done it in the show it's set in a circus and ducky meets a lion and then he meets a flamingo and the lion says you can't do this because you're too small he meets a flamingo who's a tightrope walk and the flamingo says you can't do this because you're not pink and only the pink people can do it and then he meets um a seal and the seal says you can't bounce the balls like we do because of this and because of that and um and uh and 
then they hear they overhear Ducky singing the head of the circus um, who's a peacock overhears um, Ducky singing and says oh you don't have to lift the weights or bounce the balls like everyone else why don't you just sing and so the message was to myself and to my niece and to everyone who's kind of been marginalized for being different that you don't you becoming the swan there is no change necessary for you to accept yourself um and that's how i dealt with the issues raised from my niece going to school ghetto often amidst the glamour of cabaret and show business you've been hit by bouts of depression could you start by taking me back to when you first realized that you were struggling with mental illness? Yes, I think if you, cumulatively speaking, if you are marginalized, um, I think if you are looking at plotting the trajectory of getting to depression, I think that it's very likely. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of part it becomes part of that, your experience, your life experience, because it takes a lot of mental energy, strength, temerity, endurance to live in an environment and in society that reminds you that you're different, but not just not just different, it's also different and wrong, you know? It's only recently that um, gays could get married here in Sydney, mm. you know? and not that campaign was so ugly i was here for part of it. it was so it was so ugly so it you live in a society where you're reminded that not just you're you're not just different but you're wrong and there's an illegality to you um and when you're all these things so i'm not just one of them i'm not just gay i'm also black you know so what, what does that mean for how depression manifests for you i mean in the actual image of it what what happens when you're depressed? Yeah. Um, well... Or your experience of for it. For me, um, at the at the height of it, it literally feels like my blood is replaced with lead. Um, I can't move. I physically can't move. I feel like to get out of bed feels like literally scraping off... Um, scraping off the... If you've ever tried to boil rice and you burn it, it feels like scraping that off. That's how I literally, I'm, I feel like chemically, I'm chemically altered. My taste is different. Um, no, and there's this whole sense of um, hopelessness and senselessness where you, an existential kind of, what's the point? Does it matter? Does Do I matter? Does anything I do matter? Does, and who cares? Um, and I what's think- What's it like turning around to perform from that space? It's very difficult, but however, there's a really interesting thing that performance gives you in that it means you have a goal. It means that I do have to scrape myself because I have to scrape myself off this bed and go and get ready to go to work. And in those scenarios, putting makeup on becomes a bit like preparing for war, like painting war paints um, and fighting your demons because you've got to do it. But counter counterintuitively, it is also life-saving having to perform because it means that you have a purpose. It means that you have a goal. It means that 
you have that reason to scrape yourself up off out of bed and go and do something I, one, one of the worst times is i was performing um uh at the at the national doing threepenny opera and i i had to go and do it you know um and having that was uh was a really good reason to kind of keep going it just meant i it, having habit and routine was life-saving Getty, what would you like to uh, play us out with today? Um, I would like to play you out with another icon that appears in my show, um, the glorious Whitney Houston, R.I.P., with the dance floor filler. I want to dance with somebody. Gatilé Chocolat, thank you very much my pleasure. for being my guest on Out of the Box today.